People outside of the United States do not understand what's going on in this election. They really don't. Today's episode is brought to you by Magoosh, online test prep for the GRE, GMAT, LSAT, SAT, ACT, TOEFL, and Praxis. It can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests. Magoosh offers a better solution, affordable and effective test prep that is 100% online. You can log in anytime, anywhere on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. Magoosh's complete test prep starts at under $100 and they guarantee you'll improve your score. Or They'll give you your money back. Go to magoosh.com right now. That's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com and get 20% off when you use the offer code LEFT at checkout. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, The Tom Hartman Program, and Start Making Sense from The Nation magazine. Through all the chaos and confusion this week, one theme did emerge— And it was accidentally summarized best, and I can't believe I'm saying this, by Antonio Sabato Jr., an IMDb page awarded actor, who delivered a relatively restrained speech before opening his heart regarding President Obama to ABC News. First of all, I don't believe that the guy is a Christian. I don't believe he follows uh, the God that I love and the Jesus that I love. You Here's believe that President Obama is a Muslim? Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And that is based on what you feel in your yeah, heart? That's what I believe. Yeah. And you know what? I have the right to believe that, and you have the right to go against that, but I believe it. Now, what's revealing there isn't his mistaken belief that President Obama is a Muslim. Uh, it's also not the big shock that Antonio Sabato Jr., star of the actual VH1 reality show My Antonio, is still <laughs> both alive and an idiot. No, what is truly revealing is his implication that believing something to be true is the same as it being true. Because if anything, that was the theme of the Republican convention this week. It was a four-day exercise in emphasizing feelings over facts. People around the country feel the Obama administration has kicked them to the curb. Our country right now is is in a very bad spot. You can feel it. The vast majority of Americans today do not feel safe. There's a lot of Americans out there who feel like Democrat politicians have taken them for granted. The whole economy feels stuck. What do you mean it feels stuck? The economy is about numbers. Feelings are supposed to be irrelevant. Uh, Incidentally, feelings are supposed to be irrelevant is a phrase that's inscribed on every British marriage certificate. (laughs) And, And this focus, this focus on feelings reached its apex in Donald Trump's acceptance speech, which was light on concrete policy, but heavy on provoking strong emotions. Decades of progress made in bringing down crime are now being reversed. I know that corruption has reached a level like never, ever before in our country. Poverty and violence at home. War and destruction abroad, 180,000 illegal immigrants with criminal records ordered deported from our country are tonight roaming free to threaten peaceful citizens. Holy shit. (laughs) He sounds like he's about to announce the first annual Hunger Games. (laughs) But 
But look, it is worth noting that since President Obama took office, crime rates, the flow of illegal immigrants over our borders, and claims for unemployment benefits have all declined. And yet, frighteningly, when reporters started pointing that out, it didn't seem to matter. Just watch as Newt Gingrich brushed off any effort to fact-check Trump's claims about the U.S. crime rate. Violent crime is down. The economy is ticking up. It is not down in the biggest cities. Violent crime murder rate is down. Then how, come, then how come it's up in Chicago, up in Baltimore, and there up in Washington? There are pockets where cer- certainly we your have nas- not tackled Your national capital, your third, your, across, your third biggest city. But violent crime across the country is down. The average American, I will bet you this morning, does not think crime is down, does not think they are safer. But it is. We are safer, and it is down. No, that's your view. Yeah, I, I just told no. No, what I said is also a fact. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's only a fact that that's a feeling people have. This is a graph of the violent crime rate. It's not a f***ing Rorschach test. You can't infer anything you like from it. And sure, you can cherry pick recent upticks in some cities, but the overall trend across the country during the Obama presidency, and indeed for the last 25 years, is down. But Newt wasn't done. The current view is that liberals have a whole set of statistics which theoretically may be right, but it's not where human beings are. But what you're saying yeah, is, but, but, hold, but hold on, uh, Mr. Speaker, because you're saying liberals use these numbers, they use this sort of sure. magic math. This is uh, the FBI statistics. They're not a liberal organization. No, They're but what I said is equally true. People feel, feel more threatened. Yes, they feel it, but the facts don't support Fine. it. As a, as a political ca- candidate, I'll go with how people feel, and I'll let you go with the theoreticians. He brought... He just brought a feeling to a f***ing fact fight. And and it is worth taking um, just a moment to seriously consider what Gingrich was saying there. Because think about it. I think we can all agree that candidates can create feelings in people. And what Gingrich is saying is that feelings are as valid as facts. So then, by the transitive property, candidates can create facts. Which is terrifying, because that means someone like Donald Trump can essentially create his own reality, and that is the closest thing to an actual magic spell I think I've ever seen. (laughs) And if you're thinking, well, hold on, eventually reality will set in, because if elected, Trump would actually have to deal with facts. Well, I'm not so sure about that. Just this week, the Times reported that not only was John Kasich asked if he had any interest in the vice presidency by the Trump campaign, he was offered quite a lot more. Donald Trump Jr. even called one of John Kasich's top aides and said that if he wanted the job, he could even be uh, in charge of foreign and domestic policy, which, of course, is kind of everything. Yeah, exactly. The only thing that is not foreign policy or domestic policy is space policy, which leads me to believe Donald Trump's entire goal is to eventually own the moon. But it gets better, because apparently when Kasich's advisors asked what Trump would be in charge of, the response was, making America great again. (laughs) Which, objectively, is not a job, but I guess it feels like one, and it seems that's all that f***ing matters now. Now, now the Trump family disputed that story, naturally, but it does often seem like Trump is more interested in attention than the hard work of getting things done in a complicated political system. Just last night, he tweeted out what seemed to be his main takeaway from this convention. Okay. Okay. First... 24 out of 75 is 32%, not 33. But that doesn't matter. That clearly doesn't matter. The point is, look, 
The point is, the notion that Donald Trump would be a hands-off president might actually represent the best-case scenario here. The much more frightening prospect would be if he were hands-on. Because between those 24 minutes of applause was a symphony of bile and race-baiting. Remember, this is a man who has retaliated against journalists and at various points has advocated killing terrorist families, endorsed torture and expressed admiration for leaders like Kim Jong-un, Saddam Hussein and Vladimir Putin. His message this week was the message of every strong man ever. The world is dangerous and only I can make you safe. And if that sounds scary, there have been warning signs. Just watch this DVD extra from the first season of The Apprentice. It's a, it's a music video they made. And it gives you a sense of how Donald Trump envisions himself. This is a dictatorship, and I'm the dictator. There's no voting, there's no jury. Oh, sure. It, it's funny now to hear him say he's a dictator as a voice in the background says slave to the master over and over again. But unless we're careful, by this time next year, that could be America's new national anthem. Someone will be fired. It has been a tumultuous 24 hours here at the opening of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. The convention proceedings have officially began one day after Democratic National Committee Chair Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigned following the release of nearly 20,000 emails revealing how the Democratic Party favored Hillary Clinton and worked behind the scenes to discredit and defeat Bernie Sanders. On Monday morning, protesters booed and heckled Wasserman Schultz at a Florida delegation breakfast. Later, Senator Bernie Sanders spoke about the DNC email scandal in a meeting with his delegates. As I think all of you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz resigned yesterday as chair of the DNC. Her resignation opens up the possibility of new leadership at the top of the Democratic Party that will stand with working people. Later in the meeting with his close to 2000 delegates, the room erupted into boos when the Vermont senator repeated his support for Hillary Clinton. We have got to defeat Donald Trump. And we have got to elect Hillary Clinton and Tim Kaine.
Support, support, supporters of Sanders chanted, run, 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 and Bernie or bust. In one of the most animated moments on Tuesday, delegates repeatedly broke into chants of lock her up during a speech by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie when he staged a mock trial of Hillary Clinton. Libya today, after Hillary Clinton's grand strategy, their economy's in ruins, there's death and violence on the streets, and ISIS is now dominating that country. So I'm going to ask you this. Hillary Clinton as a failure for ruining Libya and creating a nest for terrorist activity by ISIS. Answer me now, is she guilty or not guilty? The audience was chanting, lock her up, lock her up, and guilty many putting their hands up across, as if to say she should be handcuffed. Another speaker Tuesday night, former presidential candidate Dr. Ben Carson, went as far as connecting Hillary Clinton to Lucifer. This is a nation where our Pledge of Allegiance says we are one nation under God. This is a nation. This is a nation where every coin in our pocket and every bill in our wallet says, in God we trust. So are we willing to elect someone as president who has as their role model somebody who acknowledges Lucifer? Even though Tuesday night marked the official nomination of Donald Trump, much of the focus was not actually on Trump. During his keynote address, House Speaker Paul Ryan mentioned Trump's name just twice. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson mentioned Trump's name only once. Johnson's in a tight race against former Senator Russ Feingold. Earlier in the day, Politico ran a stunning article about fears within the Republican establishment about the future of the party. They revealed former President George W. Bush recently told aides, quote, I'm worried I will be the last Republican president, unquote. On day three of the DNC, the Democrats finally came out swinging against Donald Trump, and we've collected a number of their best attacks. First, here is a montage put together by J.R. Jackson. Is a guy who promises a lot, but uh, you might have noticed he's got a way of saying the same two words every time he makes his biggest, hugest promises. Believe me, Trump says he wants to run the nation like he's running his business. 
God help us. It's going to be great. Believe me. His lack of empathy and compassion can be summed up in a phrase that I suspect he's most proud of having made famous. You're fired. We're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Believe me. The Donald is not really a plans guy. He's not really a facts guy either. Detroit is 18 months out of bankruptcy. Something Donald Trump knows a little bit about. We're going to destroy ISIS so fast, believe me. He even mocks our POWs like John McCain. I served in the same Navy as John McCain. I used to vote in the same party as John McCain. Donald, you're not fit to polish John McCain's boots. But I have to say, I know plenty of businessmen and women who've achieved remarkable success without leaving a trail of lawsuits and unpaid workers and people feeling like they got cheated. There's nothing suspicious in my tax returns, believe me. But unlike Donald Trump, Detroit is only going to do bankruptcy once. He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. Truth be told, the richest thing about Donald Trump is his hypocrisy. Donald still says, believe me. People outside of the United States do not understand what's going on in this election. They really don't. A man who confuses bluster with strength. Donald Trump is a walking, talking, recruiting poster for terrorists. And I promise you, our strength, our greatness, does not depend on Donald Trump. Believe me. No major party nominee in the history of this nation has ever known less or has been less prepared to deal with our national security. I'm a New Yorker, and I know a con when I see one. Believe me, we're not a fragile people. We're not a frightful people. Our power doesn't come from some self-declared savior promising that he alone can restore order as long as we do things his way. We don't look to be ruled. He just says, believe me. He has no clue about what makes America great. Actually, he has no clue, period. You got it. Let me. Yeah, so we actually can't tell what they're saying. Maybe the JR truth. can can let us know. But uh, a lot of great lines there. I hadn't actually heard. I was in and out of Biden's speech when it was actually live. Uh, that he hasn't got a clue. Period. I really like that. That's yeah, good. So that's why I really liked last night. I was asking them to attack Donald Trump. At the end of the night, we thought they had. You see that compilation? They definitely did. They did. That was a good barrage of attacks. Uh, Hudson was great. That's the rear admiral. Uh, the one that said you can't, uh, you're not fit to polish John McCain's boots. Mike Bloomberg had a bunch of great lines in there. So, uh, of, of course, Obama had a much, much better speech than Tim Kaine did, whose speech was otherwise milquetoast. But you know what? 
the thing we'll probably remember is, believe me. Yeah. yeah. Which ironically goes to advantage of Donald Trump. He just takes something and just repeats it over and over and over until it's in your head. Crooked Hillary, lying Ted. So what's the one thing that sticks out to us? Believe Tim Kaine saying over and over again, believe me. Right. Yeah. So, and he can't say it anymore, Trump. Now either, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, I think he. I think he can't help it. I, yeah, I don't maybe, think he maybe you're right, John. Yeah. You know what? I, I think he'll say it again. Believe me, yeah. you will. During his nomination speech here in Cleveland, Donald Trump referred to former Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. I have seen firsthand how the system is rigged against our citizens, just like it was rigged against Bernie Sanders. He never had a chance, never had a chance. But his supporters will join our movement because we will fix his biggest single issue, trade deals that strip our country of its jobs and strip us of our wealth as a country. Millions of Democrats will join our movement because we are going to fix the system so it works fairly and justly for each and every American. That is Donald Trump and his acceptance of the Republican nomination as presidential candidate last night at the Q, at the Quicken Loans Arena. Um, David K. Johnston, our guest, the author of Making of Donald Trump, Vince Warren, the Center for Constitutional Rights, and Jameel Smith, Cleveland native and um, uh, also works with MTV News. David K. Johnston, what he was doing here, Donald Trump, and appealing to Bernie Sanders voters and what his record is on dealing with the economy and business. Well, I find it hard to believe very many people who supported Bernie Sanders are going to go over to Donald. The demographic data shows the dividing line here is basically race. Donald's whole campaign, as Vince and Jamila pointed out, is built around racism and, and not deeply coded texts of racism. Uh, the people who are supporting Bernie Sanders share the same economic concerns and legitimately share them because our policies have really hurt the bottom 90% of Americans in the last 36 years. But those are not people who are going to uh, be drawn in by Donald's fear-mongering, Donald's blatant appeals to racism, uh, his anti, his bigotry against Muslims and others, that, that's not the Bernie Sanders crowd. Those people may stay home, but I can't see very many of them joining Donald. Many commentators have compared Trump's speech to the one given by Richard Nixon at the 1968 Republican National Convention. Cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? 
That was Richard Nixon, 1968 Republican National Convention. Vince Warren, do you see similarities? Yeah, and I'm glad that you played that that clip because there are tremendous situ, uh, similarities, not only in the contents of the speech, but also in the context of the times. Um, Richard Nixon, of course, came in as a law and order candidate. Um, looking at the same demographic and making the same arguments, which is that the nation is under siege, there's all of this crime that's happening. Now, of course, what he didn't talk about was that all of the protests that were happening were protesting unjust wars abroad, protesting unjust treatment of black people here, protesting um, police brutality and authoritarianism. It's the same type of context that we're that we have today. And of course, Donald Trump in his speech didn't point that out either. When he was talking about crime and law and order, he was talking about killing a police officers, but of course he wasn't talking about police officers killing black people. And uh, Donald Trump and I think Richard Nixon uh, create the hero victim narrative for law enforcement. The heroes that, you know, they create a scenario where they, things are so bad that the only people that can swoop in are law enforcement, but uh, po the poor protesters are are villainizing and making their, their job so much harder to do. An attack on a police is an attack on America. Uh, what we also need to hear, and we didn't hear it from Nixon and we certainly aren't hearing it from Trump, is that if, uh, if police officers are killing black people, what is that an attack on? And of course, that's why we have so much protest and righteous protest right now, because it's, it's terrible what's happening to communities of color. That's what the reaction is. And both Trump and Nixon were looking to clamp down and convert that into some sort of crazy chaos that needed to be controlled. Richard Nixon's on his knees. He sent so many overseas. He'd like to know if you and me could help him in some way. A little camouflage and blue to mask the evil as men do. A small diversion caused by two. Male kids come to play. And we heard Richard Nixon say. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has made history by becoming the first woman to accept a major party presidential nomination. During her acceptance speech Thursday night, Clinton said the country is at a moment of reckoning. We have to heal the divides in our country, not just on guns, but on race, immigration, and more. starts with listening, listening to each other, trying as best we can to walk in each other's shoes. So let's put ourselves in the shoes of young black and Latino men and women who face the effects of systemic racism and are made to feel like their lives are disposable. In the shoes of police officers kissing their kids and spouses goodbye every day, heading off to do a dangerous and necessary job. We will reform our criminal justice system from end to end and rebuild trust between law enforcement and the communities they serve. We will defend 
end, we will defend all our rights, civil rights, human rights, and voting rights, women's rights, and workers' rights, LGBT rights, and the rights of people with disabilities. Hillary Clinton thanked her Democratic challenger, Bernie Sanders, and repeatedly took jabs at Republican nominee Donald Trump. In Atlantic City, 60 miles from here, you will find contractors and small businesses who lost everything because Donald Trump refused to pay his bills. Now remember what the president said last night, don't boo, vote. and needed the money, not because he couldn't pay them, but because he wouldn't pay them. He just stiffed them. And you know that sales pitch he's making to be president? Put your faith in him and you'll win big. That's the same sales pitch he made to all those small businesses. Then Trump walked away and left working people holding the bag. He also talks a big game about putting America first. Well, please explain what part of America first leads him to make Trump ties in China, not Colorado, Trump suits in Mexico, not Michigan, Trump furniture in Turkey, not Ohio, Trump picture frames in India, not Wisconsin. Donald Trump says he wants to make America great again, well, he could start by actually making things in America again. Speakers during the final night of the convention included LGBT rights activist Sarah McBride, who became the first openly transgender woman to speak at a major party convention. Four years ago, I came out as transgender while serving as student body president in college. At the time, I was scared. I worried that my dreams and my identity were mutually exclusive. Since then, though, I've seen that change is possible. I witnessed history interning at the White House and helping my home state of Delaware pass protections for transgender people. Will we be a nation where there's only one way to love, only one way to look, and only one way to live? Or will we be a nation where everyone has the freedom to live openly and equally? A nation that's stronger together. Each year I raise money for the internationally renowned 350.org and the locally unstoppable Chesapeake Climate Action Network to help them in their missions to fight climate change. By now, you probably know the drill. I ride my bike 300 miles and you're so impressed that you donate money. It's pretty simple. We are at the halfway mark in the summer fundraiser in every sense. So far, we've had 68 donors and they've raised half of that goal. And now I have another 30 days to raise the remaining $2,700. And for me, it's not just about the total dollar amount. Uh, I would love to have thanked 
at least 200 donors when all is said and done. So whether you've got $100 or only $5 to chip in, I would love to be able to read your name on the show to thank you for your support. And as I've been telling you, to sweeten the deal, I have turned this into a two-in-one fundraiser for a limited time offer for anyone who makes a tax-deductible donation of $25 or more to the climate ride and signs up as a member of the show, contributing as little as 6 bucks a month. Support both my ride and the show, and you can receive one of our excellent Best of the Left t-shirts or hoodies made from 100% recycled materials by Repair the World Custom Apparel. For details, just go to bestoftheleft.com, click on the big summer fundraiser banner where you will be directed on how to contribute to the climate ride, sign up as a member, and submit your thank you gift t-shirt order. Thanks so much for your support. the Republican Party essentially forgot to celebrate America this year it might be because they were too busy celebrating Donald Trump's claims that he would fix whatever Donald Trump thinks is wrong with America. Nobody knows the system better than me. Which is why I alone can fix it when I take the oath of office next year, I will restore law and order to our country. I am your voice. Now, now, I am your voice is actually a fair claim. He does speak for some people, although you would kind of hope that they would then react the way most people do when they hear their own voice, which is to say, oh, shit, I don't actually sound like that, do I? That is f***ing horrifying. <laughs> The RNC taught us that a party which used to be organised around a set of shared principles is currently organised around one man. And given that that is the case, his judgement is pretty much the only thing that is important when considering who to vote for in November. So to that end, I would like to show you something he said recently. And before I do, he has clearly said countless awful things throughout this campaign, any of which would disqualify any other candidate. Just this week, uh, he declined yet again to release his tax returns, lied about getting a letter from the NFL agreeing with him that the debate shouldn't clash with football games, called Angela Merkel a moron, implied that Brazil brought the Zika virus on themselves and encouraged a foreign powers hack of his political rival. Now, two of those didn't happen, but you're not sure which two, and that's kind <laughs> of the point, isn't it? Because... Trump hasn't said one crazy thing. He said thousands of crazy things, each of which blunts the effect of the others. It's the bed of nails principle. If you step on one nail, it hurts you. If you step on a thousand nails, no single one stands out and you're fine. That is how Donald Trump has managed to say pretty much anything in this campaign, seemingly without consequences. And yet, even with that caveat, his response when asked about that speech from Kizza Khan stands out. I saw him. He was, uh, you know, very emotional and probably looked like uh, a nice guy to me. His wife, uh, if you look at his wife, she was standing there. She had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, but plenty of people have written that. Uh, she, uh, she was extremely quiet and it looked like she had nothing to say. Okay, for a start, his wife has explained that she chose not to speak because she gets too upset 
when she sees images of her dead son's face, you f***ing asshole. But, but I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Please continue. He said you have sacrificed nothing and no one. Well, that sounds... Uh, who wrote that? Did uh, Hillary's uh, scriptwriters write it? How would you answer that, Father? What sacrifice have you made for your country? I think I've made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, I work very, very hard. I've created thousands and thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs, uh, built great structures. I've done... I've had, I've had tremendous success. Uh, I think Those I've are sacrifices? Oh, sure, I think they're sacrifices. No! No, they are absolutely not. They are self-serving half-truths from a self-serving half-man who has somehow convinced half the country that sacrifice is the same thing as success. Honestly, the main takeaway from these two weeks is that, incredibly, we may be on the brink of electing such a damaged, sociopathic narcissist that the simple presidential duty of comforting the families of fallen soldiers may actually be beyond his capabilities. And I genuinely did not think that that was a part of the job that someone could be bad at. Current Vice President Joe Biden warned of Trump's lack of empathy. His cynicism is unbounded. His lack of empathy and compassion can be summed up in a phrase that I suspect he's most proud of having made famous. You're fired. I mean, really, I'm not joking. Think about that. Think about that. Think about everything you learned as a child. No matter where you were raised, how can there be pleasure in saying you're fired? He's trying to tell us he cares about the middle class. Give me a break. That's a bunch of malarkey. President Obama implied Trump is a homegrown demagogue who threatens American democracy. He's betting that if he scares enough people, he might score just enough votes to win this election. And that's another bet that Donald Trump will lose. And the reason he'll lose it is because he's selling the American people short. We're not a fragile people. We're not a frightful people. Our power doesn't come from some self-declared savior promising that he alone can restore order as long as we do things his way. We don't look to be ruled. Our power, our power comes from those immortal declarations first put to paper right here in Philadelphia all those years ago. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that we, the people, can form a more perfect union. One of the most moving moments of the night occurred in a section focused on gun violence. 
Former Arizona Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords, who was wounded in a 2011 shooting, briefly spoke to the crowd. In Congress, I learned a powerful lesson. Strong women get things done. She will fight to make our family safer. In the White House, she will stand up to the gun lobby. That's why I'm voting for Hillary. Speaking is difficult for me. But come January, I want to say these two words, Madam President. If I was president, I'd get elected on Friday, assassinated on Saturday, buried on Sunday, they go back to work on Monday. If I was president, if I was president, if I was president, Instead of spending billions on the war, I can use that money so I can feed the poor. Cause I know some so poor. When it rains, that's when they shower, scream and fight the power. That's when the vulture devours if I was president. So this morning, somebody tweeted, you know, well, you know, how come you're not offering an opinion on this? And so I tweeted back <laughs> saying, you know, what do you think? Do you, do you think Hillary did a good job uh, or not? And, and I tweeted back words to the effect of, I don't remember my exact words, but I, I, I tweeted back words to the effect of, I thought she, she knocked it out of the park. And her speech reminded me of John Kennedy, JFK. And, you know, immediately uh, there were all these uh, tweets back at me going, what? <laughs> You're comparing Hillary Clinton to JFK? Well, yeah, I'm, you know, I remember JFK. Right. I, you know, I, I, I was a little kid. I was nine years old when he was elected, but I remember the election and I was, uh, what, 12 years old when he was assassinated. I remember the assassination. I was a teenager when Robert Kennedy ran for, for president in 1968. I was 17 years old. I remember that vividly. I remember Martin Luther King vividly. I remember the assassination of Bobby and Robert. Uh, excuse me, Bobby and Martin. Um, I, and, and clearly, I remember the assassination of J, JFK. Uh, Lauren and I wrote two books about it. But here's here's why I was saying JFK. First of all, keep in mind, John Kennedy was was the conservative of the two brothers, and and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, Kennedy had been in the Navy. His PT boat was blown up. He he had a, a a high level of admiration for the military and of commitment to the military. He had fought in World War II. He was not afraid of of speaking of our military, praising our military, having been a part of the military. In fact, he ran on that. Um, he was you know I mean well, and that was after the good war, World War II. We've had so many bad wars since then. It's it's gotten so that politicians are a little you know. Eh, Let's not touch this. So anyhow, that's number one. That's, uh, you know, if, if, if I was 
if I thought that this was uh, the, the Hillary's speech was basically Bernie's speech, I would have said it reminded me of, of RFK because I thought it was, uh, you know, it, it's interesting to watch the evolution of Hillary Clinton and the, the evolution of her ability to present herself, which she's talked about a number of times, that she's she's a very good worker. She's not a very good politician or not a very good presenter, shall we say. I think she's really getting hit her, hit her groove. There were times last night when she stumbled. There were times when she stumbled on the prompter. I could see it. I, you know, I do that for a living. I, you know, read a prompter, uh, you know, on the TV show at night. I don't do it on radio, but on TV. And, uh, you know, it's not easy. And it's a skill that you learn. And doing it and making it seem natural is, you know, so anyhow, she's, but, but boy, when she got cranked up, I thought it was, an, it was amazing. Now, then there's people who respond to me and say, but, you know, I don't trust what she said. I mean, I liked what she said. She shouted out to the Bernie folks. She listed a bunch of progressive things. Uh, you know, it was a very progressive speech, arguably more progressive in some ways than, than, than John Kennedy's speeches. But I don't trust her, people are saying to me. And my response to you is, don't trust any politician. It's not, it's not, we're not electing a king. We're not electing a god. We're electing a politician. We're electing a representative. And then people say, oh, but I trust Bernie. I'd trust, I'd follow him to the end of the earth. Well, so would I. I trust Bernie. I, you know, and, and I say, don't trust any politician. Bernie's very much an exception. But that said, if Bernie Sanders was elected president of the United States tomorrow, and we all said, okay, we got Bernie in, let's go home, we would have the same problem that we have right now with President Obama, which would be Republicans running the House and Senate and obstructing everything Bernie would try to do. And he would have a failed presidency if we didn't participate. You get this? Yeah, this is our job as much as anybody else's. The reality is that, that Hillary Clinton is a smart enough politician to have figured out that the ground has shifted in American politics. The, the, the uh, neoliberal uh, worldview that Bob, Bob uh, uh, from, is it Al from? Thank you, thank you, Shano. Al from, I keep messing, ming, mingling him in my mind with Bob Trump. That Al from and Bill Clinton hatched in the late 80s and, and rolled out in the early 90s. That neoliberal consensus is dying. You know, the idea that, that uh, you know, private-public partnerships are a wonderful thing and we should privatize large parts of, of the government and that we should cut back on, on programs that help people out and that, you know, just the whole, you know, uh, the era of big government is over and the end of welfare as we know it and all that. That stuff is dead and dying, and Hillary Clinton has figured that out. Thus the speech last night, So, which leads us to the problem of governing. So if she knows what's right, and she's saying what's right, how do you make it happen? Well, you'd have to push her. Hillary knows what's right, but we have to push her. I mean, after JFK died, and then after Bobby Kennedy died, and for those of you who aren't old enough to remember this, just, you know, reality check it with somebody my age. After these guys died, Lyndon Johnson became president of the United States. Lyndon Johnson was a very conservative Democrat from Texas who knew how to take names and kick ass. And because we pushed him, because Martin Luther King pushed him, because the civil rights movement pushed him, he passed some of the most sweeping legislation in the history of our country. The Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the, the Great Society, 
created Medicare, created all these extraordinary programs. Why? Because we pushed the hell out of this guy. The one thing we were unsuccessful in pushing him on was ending the Vietnam War, and we actually were successful on that and didn't learn about it until three years ago when the LBJ Library released the tape of Lyndon Johnson talking to Everett Dirksen about how Richard Nixon was blowing up his negotiations with the South Vietnamese in late 1968 in order to win the election, that Richard Nixon was committing treason and thus the war continued. But we were actually successful in pushing LBJ to end the war. LBJ, a guy who was way to the right of Hillary Clinton at the beginning of his presidency. Robert Kennedy hated Lyndon Johnson because he was so far to the right. And Lyndon Johnson ended up being one of our most progressive presidents. There's some history here people need to know. Lyndon Johnson told the nation, have no fear of escalation. I am trying everyone to please. Though it isn't really war, we're sending 50,000 more to help save Vietnam from Vietnamese. I jumped off the old troop ship and sank in mud up to my hips. I cussed until the captain called me down. Never mind how hard it's raining, think of all the ground we're gaining, just don't take one step outside of town. Lyndon Johnson told the nation, have no fear of escalation, I am trying everyone to please. This is Alan Minsky and I am in the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. About 30 minutes after Hillary Clinton finished her speech in which she accepted the Democratic Party's nomination as the presidential candidate of the party. And I'm joined by John Nichols, who's the national correspondent for The Nation magazine. And John, first off, what do you think of Hillary's speech? Well, in many ways, it was a classic uh, convention speech for a candidate of either party. What you saw was an appeal to unity within the party, as well as then uh, a taking of the fight to your opponent, and finally some vision of, of where you might want to go. Now, there's a unique dynamic to this convention, and that is that the appeal to unity was a tougher challenge than in many recent conventions. We have to go back, I would argue, at least to 1980 for the Democrats, where you had a nominee who had as much of a challenge. And, of course, 1980 was the year where Edward Kennedy challenged incumbent president Jimmy Carter. And, and so Clinton's task was, was distinct. And I was very intrigued by how she approached it. Very early in the speech, right after she thanked her family and, and many of her closest allies, she thanked Bernie Sanders. Not with a throwaway line of, well, I certainly want to say hi to my distinguished opponent and hope he enjoys his retirement. No, this was an extended soliloquy on Sanders and his supporters, thanking them for what they would brought to this campaign, saying your cause is our cause talking about implementing the progressive platform, saying it referred to it as the platform we wrote together. I mean, this was really a, a major outreach. In fact, I talked uh, just after the speech to Jim Zogby, one of her key appoint one of Bernie Sanders' key appointees to the platform committee. I said, how did she do? And, and he said, look, I've been going to conventions for decades. It's very rare that I've heard a nominee talk about the platform and celebrate the fact that that nominee was encouraged to add things from the other side and to say that's good. So he was very complimentary, said it was the best he had heard her. Uh, that was important. At this point, that was something she needed to do. It certainly did not get every Sanders backer to suddenly embrace the Clinton campaign, 
But I was in the hall some and watching, and I was struck by the fact that while the Clinton supporters were cheering very enthusiastically, there were a lot of Sanders supporters who were listening and hearing elements of, of what they brought to this year's politics echoed in this speech. Uh, will it be enough for everyone? No, of course not. Will it be enough for a lot of folks? Well, if we believe the polling data that shows a significant number of Sanders backers are going to vote for Hillary Clinton, I think this speech reinforced that in, in a smart way. In that sense, do you think that the speech almost was a microcosm of these four days here in Philadelphia? It was. I think it was a speech that was rooted in these four days here in mm. Philadelphia that, that recognized the need to reach out, to kind of keep working to make those connections. This is a big deal because the, I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt what the Clinton people would have liked. They would have liked that on Monday Bernie Sanders gave his speech and on Tuesday he moved that her, her nomination be accepted by acclamation and, and that that was that, that they didn't have to mention Bernie Sanders again. That, that probably is what they would have preferred. The Sanders delegates, grassroots Sanders backers, really is something very important. He brought a lot of people into this process who had not been in it before or maybe who'd been in it before but always kind of on the outside trying to get in or make a, get, deliver a message. They were on the floor. Their dissident politics resonated. It was heard. And uh, again, some people will tell you it wasn't heard enough. I understand that. But Hillary Clinton actually said, we heard you in the speech. And this is a dynamic of politics that we often lose sight of. Uh, we think that politics is always a, a zero-sum game, you know, that, that you either you win or you lose. There's no middle ground. The reality of politics is that you need to keep pressing. You keep pushing. You don't let somebody off the hook just because they say a couple nice things to you. You make demands and you make continual demands. Last night on the floor... When President Obama was speaking, when Tim Kaine was speaking, you saw hundreds of people with their no TPP signs. And that's the continuing of the making of the demands. I think this is a very healthy thing. And, and I think it is also something that is quite distinct. I've been to a lot of conventions in my adult life. I don't think I've been to one this interesting. It's true. There were in the hallways of this sports arena that this convention has been held in. Uh, a, a considerable number of uh, protests across the past few days. Absolutely. And fascinating protests, by the way, too. I'd say, again, there were some people who were in the pure politics of the moment. Uh, Bernie Sanders backers walking out, uh, and some did. It wasn't a large, large group that I saw, but, but, but there were folks who did. But there were also people marching through the hallways with their uh, uh, free Palestine mm. and, and support the Palestinians' banners. Uh, there were people who were here uh, objecting to what they saw as too little talk about climate change, making their making a noise. Now, this is such a big place. We have to be honest. And mm -hmm. Not every not every protest is heard mm -hmm. by everyone, but there was a lot of it here. This was a rollicking convention, not one that that sort of followed every script, and that's great. I thought a very significant component of tonight's main stage events, and also a an element of Hillary Clinton's speech, I think there was a lot of give to the Sanders wing of the party, as it were, on domestic policy. Uh, not a lot on foreign policy. Oh, this was yeah, this was staking right. her her. She, this was confirming her stature as a hawk. I think I think that that anyone 
who sees Hillary Clinton as a, some sort of peace advocate uh, is missing both the history and, and the current moment. Uh, she's clearly conscious of that. And she should be. Remember, <laughs> the main reason she wasn't nominated and probably elected president mm-hmm. in 2008 mm-hmm. was because of her stance on the Iraq war. We should absolutely not miss that reality. However, she kept that real tight in this. She didn't go on a big foreign policy soliloquy, and I think there's a reason for that. I think she really didn't want didn't to scratch that wound, mm-hmm. so to speak. When she did mention some of her foreign policy stance, there were a chance of no more wars from mm-hmm. the floor. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily rock the hall, but they, they were heard. And so I, I think that what you have with Hillary Clinton is a candidate who came into this race anticipating the possibility that she could, you know, remember she was the clear front runner at the start, that she could pretty much do things as she wanted, and, and it was as simple as that. She got a message in this race that, that especially on domestic policy, you can't, where you're going, that centrist stuff is not selling very well anymore. And I think also, to a smaller extent, she got a, some message that, you know, you would be wise not to give the big hawkish speech at this convention because it, it isn't going to be particularly well received. Now, the danger of this, and this is one thing, the danger of this, of course, is that what's said at a convention, what's said in a platform, is not necessarily what's done by a presidency. And so I would suggest that what the Sanders backers and the dissidents at this convention did, by continually challenging the, the certain nominee, continually challenging the nominee herself after she had gotten the gig, they gave an example of how progressives ought to approach the the coming days many progressives will support hillary clinton for president some will not but no matter what there has to be a recognition that this presidential candidate this nominee seems to respond to pressure not to you know gentle cajoling right so i think you saw some very healthy modeling here and the last thing i will suggest is that this was a dynamic and fascinating moment as well, because even as we saw elements of uh, Hillary Clinton that people might disagree with, uh, issues that they, they weren't comfortable with, there was this fundamental reality that history was being made, that for the first time in more than 200 years, the United States of America has a major party that has nominated a candidate for the presidency who uh, is a woman, and that's a big deal. We just heard clips featuring last week tonight pointing out that support for the Republican Party is based almost entirely on feelings rather than facts. Democracy Now! highlighted the chaos of the DNC protests, followed by a second clip highlighting the RNC speakers who are just out for blood against Clinton. The Young Turks put together a highlight reel of DNC speakers roasting Donald Trump. 
Democracy Now! then covered first Trump's and then Clinton's acceptance speeches. Last week tonight told the story of Trump's latest terrible comments about the family of a fallen soldier. Democracy Now! played a few more highlights from DNC speeches. Tom Hartman drew a comparison between Hillary Clinton and Lyndon Johnson regarding the way that they both have indicated that they are somewhat movable on their naturally moderate or conservative positions. And finally, we just heard John Nichols interviewed on Start Making Sense about the Democrats' struggle to unify the party after a bitter primary. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Ruben from Oakland calling about community control of the police versus community policing. So I'm sort of ruminating on the voicemails from this week and last episode on the warrior warrior cops versus guardian cops. And I just wanted to talk about the importance of establishing civilian review boards that operate in the capacity of regulation of the police. So that is to say, like, there should be sort of like a vestige of local or communal governmental structures where members of the community are presiding over cases where um, cops are identified as potential, like, criminals. So, like, when a cop is charged, you know, when it's a matter of police brutality, it can't just be the cops overseeing that it can't just be the justice system overseeing that because there's an, uh, an obvious institutional bias on both ends that prevents justice effective justice from being served i mean we just saw that in the freddie gray case where all charges have been dropped and you know it was the first time where we'd actually seen charges it was one of the few times where we've seen charges brought but the justice system fails because of you know the blue wall and an institutional an institutional bias in addition to that i want to talk about like the origins of police and their current role how police were established as fugitive slave patrols and today they do their best to protect the status quo in terms of power dynamics so the efficacy of the community policing model, that is to say, cops going into communities and interacting with people in a relatable fashion, in a personable fashion, you know, like it's all good and well until members of the community start committing crimes in order to sustain themselves because cops aren't trained to give preferential treatment for poor people committing crimes in order to get by in life. There's no model for that in the system. So, like, there's a certain air of irreconcilability that comes with that. And it's sort of, like, nice to imagine it working, but in reality, it's impracticable. I mean, anybody who's participated in Occupy protests or or has been at a rally where police have marched on protesters can recognize that like there's an inevitable limit to meet the community policing model and to that effect social justice goals i mean you know protesters are out there trying to get to make things better for oppressed people and the cops are there to repress that sentiment so in the end i think it's 
there's a call for dramatic reform or abolition. And I think that, you know, to my mind, the two would have to be like somewhat synonymous, like because obviously there's a need for constituent body of the public that serves to like protect vulnerable people from those that might exploit them. But that group has to be genuinely vested in actually protecting the society's most vulnerable and not not being a vehicle for enforcement of the control of the strong over the weak, which is what we currently have. So like that reform would have to be like dramatic to the extent that there's that, you know, reversal of role in society. And I think whether or not we we continue to call that organization the police is sort of moot, you know, so like, um, yeah. Those are my thoughts on it. Thank you. Hey, Jay. This is Ben in Minnesota. I'll try this again. Like I said, I have a comment about the election. I don't know if you still want to talk about it, but I have nowhere else to voice the frustration. And I was a strong Bernie supporter before the election, and I'll be supporting his ideas after the election. And where I live... In Minnesota, there's some intelligent conservative types. They don't like Trump, but they can't imagine voting for Hillary. We're talking about voting libertarian or not voting at all, which is kind of echoed in the Bernie of bus people. And I just want to emphasize that when this election comes around, it's going to be a binary choice, Hillary or Trump. With the current system and barring any unforeseen event, there's no other candidate that's going to win. So unless you can honestly look at the two candidates and say they're equally bad, doesn't matter who wins, I don't care, then you have to make a choice. And if you can say you don't care, I would urge you personally to look a little bit deeper. The right to vote is too precious to just give up and sit it out. And voting third party isn't gonna make a difference in this election. So be mad at the system, support ranked choice voting, support the Green Party with donations, or run as a candidate in local elections. These are all important actions you can take that'll challenge an outdated system. But when the election comes around, it's going to be a choice of Trump or Hillary. Just be ready to make an informed decision. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for the show. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. As always, quick thanks to those who have donated to uh, my climate ride recently. Craig, Scott, Michael, Tiana, Lewis, Valerie, Joe, and Edward have all chipped in in just the past few days and have brought the total up past $2,500. So I started this fundraiser approximately a month ago. Welcome to month two. This is it. This is 30 days and counting, and I sincerely hope we can hit the goal of, uh, it's it's not exact, it's about $5,500, maybe $54 uh, that has to be raised. And uh, as I said in the middle of the show, 68 people have donated so far. And and frankly, I would love to get more small dollar donations. Uh, You know, if if you can donate more or you want to take advantage of the two for one deal and and become a member and get a T-shirt and do all that, then that's awesome. And if we blow past the goal, even better. But what I would really love is, uh, you know, if you can only afford a few bucks 
I would love to just get the total number of donors as high as possible. That That's what makes me feel better than the, the total dollar amount raised. So uh, as I've been saying, bestofleft.com, there's a big summer fundraiser banner there. Get all the details you need on how to contribute to Climate Ride. Thanks to everyone who has donated and in advance to everyone who will. Secondly, today, uh, as I mentioned in the past, I was at the DNC in Philadelphia this past week. That's why I didn't have a new show last Friday. And so I, I wanted to tell you sort of my, my takeaway from that. And as I was sort of pondering, you know, what, what's the highlight I want to talk about? Clearly for me, uh, because I, so I didn't have media credentials or anything like that. So I was outside with the riffraff, which was fine. I, I, I wanted to see the protests and the actions and the marches and everything that was going on. I was out in the heat uh, with everyone else. It was great. Uh, I, I was there to observe. To be honest, I, I, I was not... Uh, actually, I think there was maybe one or two protests I would have liked to have been part of and missed those. And then the ones that were uh, around that I saw, I was happy to observe them, but was not part of them. So so the result is that I, I sort of acted more like a journalist than I ever do, usually. Uh, I certainly don't think of myself as a journalist, and this time I kind of was just observing what was going on. And so my big takeaway, that what I want to talk about, is the fact that I, I got to see Jill Stein speak a couple of times, and now going through all these clips, I've heard her interviewed a few times because she was in Philadelphia. So I got to say, she has a couple of talking points that rub me the wrong way so hard that that's what I've decided to focus on today, because in both instances, it sounds like she's referring to me, and I think that she is badly, badly mislabeling me. So I am certainly not a Bernie or Bust person. I am certainly not a uh, Jill, not Hill person, as much as I would have preferred Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. I don't see the theory of change that stems from voting green in this election or any other election to systemic reforms until we change our voting system, until we have a uh, instant runoff voting or something like that that can allow people to logically vote for a third party and then also vote as a second option for one of the big two parties that is how we are going to break open the system. And until we do that, I just don't see a path to any kind of victory, no matter how much I agree with the goals stated by the Green Party or Jill Stein. I just don't see how their strategy gets us there. And no one has ever explained it to me. So until they do, I've got some issues. The, the first one is when she says that voting within the two-party system is voting out of fear. And to me, when you say that someone is voting out of fear, you're implying that they are not voting with logic. And trust me, most of the arguments I get in with my girlfriend are over misunderstandings that have to do with me being overly hyper-logical. And so I just, I just don't see myself as voting out of fear and throwing logic to the wind. As I just described, 
I think that voting for a third party is an excellent thing to do in a parliamentary system or in a system with instant runoff voting or some other form of voting that mathematically allows you to vote for a third party without literally throwing your vote away to a, you know, to a candidate who has 0% chance of winning and making it purely, purely symbolic. And so until we change that system, there is no mathematical benefit to voting for a third party. So that's the first one. I hate every time she says that anyone voting within the two-party system is voting out of fear. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. Second is that when she, I think, extremely dishonestly says that, uh, to try to buttress this point about voting out of fear, she says, you know, we voted out of fear before, and we got everything that we feared. We voted out of fear for Obama because we didn't want more wars or more surveillance state. You know, we didn't we didn't want to bail out the banks. We, and we, so we voted out of fear, and we got all of those things. And and she draws this comparison as if what we got from Obama was exactly what would have happened under McCain or Romney. And I just cannot say strongly enough how disingenuous that is. Let's go down that path of logic. Let's say that I voted for Obama out of fear, you know, out of fear of what McCain would have done. If we go back in time, the fear that we had about McCain was A, Palin was his running mate, and if he died, then that could have been terrible uh, for all the obvious reasons. But also, he joked pretty openly about wanting to go to war with Iran. So maybe he would have been able to go to war with Iran, and maybe he wouldn't have, but that's what he was sort of intimating he wanted to do. And that didn't happen. So if you voted for Obama out of fear of going to war with Iran, well, wish granted. And then also, as a bonus... A bunch of people with pre-existing conditions also have health care. So all you have to do is go back and listen to the last eight years of my shows and know how unbelievably critical I am of so much of what Obama has done, including Obamacare. But I still think it is incredibly disingenuous to say that voting, quote-unquote, out of fear for Obama got us everything we feared, which is absolutely what Jill Stein says. So so b- between those things, she started driving me absolutely crazy uh, because I, I feel like her comments are directed at me and I feel like they are so fundamentally wrong and flawed that she, like she's losing me. In one of those Jill Stein interviews, I heard her talk about how the Green Party has been active in trying to reform our voting laws so that we could have something like instant runoff voting. And of course, as you would expect, the Democrats buried it. They didn't want to push forward a new policy like that because it's obvious to everyone that that would be beneficial to third parties. That is an incredibly legitimate grievance for anyone to have, especially the Green Party trying to push that agenda. But it doesn't mean that the facts on the ground have changed it all. It's terrible and despicable that the two major parties are suppressing any kind of uh, voting reform that would allow for third parties to have a viable shot at being elected. But they are doing that. So the third parties don't have a viable shot of being elected. So voting for them is clearly not the way 
to achieve that end goal. Now, if, if you're just frustrated and want an actual solution, here's a solution for you. As Bernie Sanders is saying, we need a million people uh, to run as Bernie Kratz for every elected position in the land, from the, the very bottom of the local uh, school board or whatever uh, the lowest position is, all the way up to every local and state elected office. We need Bernie Kratz throughout the Democratic Party. And then here's a suggestion for you if you want to get voting reform uh, through any kind of uh, legislative body. Convince the Democrats that what you're actually trying to achieve is greater voter engagement. Democrats do better when more people vote. And right now, we have a lot of people who don't vote because they feel completely disempowered by the two entrenched parties and the fact that they know third parties have no chance. If they lived in a parliamentary system, they would probably vote, or if they had a voting system that allowed third parties to have a chance, they would probably vote. So in order, you know, just, just you don't have to be honest about this. Just tell your fellow Democrats, once you get elected as a Bernie-crat into office, tell your fellow Democrats, hey, let's get this voting reform through to inspire new voters. We, you know, the Democratic Party needs fresh blood. So let's pass this law that will allow, wink, wink, third parties to have a shot, but we know they're not going to win anyways. But if people can vote for Green Party as their first choice, well, then maybe a lot of those people will also put the Democrats down as their second choice and maybe vote down ballot as well for a whole bunch of offices where no one in the Green Party or any third party is running anyways. And that'll be a lot of uh, votes flowing into the Democratic Party. Okay. So you, you get in to, to all of these uh, low-level legislative offices, state levels where all these voting rules are put in place, and then convince the Democrats to pass voting reform. And then <laughs> we'll all rip off our masks and we'll all vote for the Green Party as our first choice and we'll unseat the two-party duopoly. How's that for a theory of change for you? As always, keep the comments coming in, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is before.